am quite uh, delighted to be here, as usual. I'm one of the senior members now of this uh, great uh, gathering here, and I'm delighted uh, that we can uh, consider the words of God. Just, uh, I just have to do this, but uh, I love being part of the local church. Everything that's been said here, it just rings out with this idea about grace. And if you're part of a community group, and I would encourage you, I'm not going to force you to or command you to or berate you for not, but if, if you're not, I'm going to encourage you to be part of a group because uh, these ideas of grace, we've been reading a prayer together, which sort of goes, part of it, part that I like is kind of... Uh, you are more loved by God than you could ever imagine. And at the same time, you are more broken and bruised uh, than you care to admit. And that's kind of okay. The gospel handles both of those things. So, just again wanted just to say how delighted I am to be here. Uh, you can call me Uncle Russ if you want. Si vous parlez français, je m'appelle Tonton Roussel. So, I want to start, and I've been, I've been here all of these uh, days of us uh, going through uh, David's life, mostly with Albert, and I think Colin's done one or two. Need to pray for Colin. He's had detached retina and needs our prayers. Uh, and I just want to go through a little bit of what my brain's been going through uh, as we've been hearing the Word of God. As Albert has said, a lot of these things maybe we've never uh, read before or they're a reminder of stuff that we didn't know about David. Uh, So my mind was going like this. Uh, I know a lot of you are hipsters and like retro stuff. Well, there was a very famous game show back in the 60s called uh, To Tell the Truth. And, of course, black and white. And the idea was you'd have... uh, Maybe, in this case, uh, three Princeton students. And one of them, one of them was an expert, let's say, on artificial intelligence or something something obscure. One of them had this weird talent. And then all three of them were pretending to be that person. Whatever. This this person who had extrasensory perception about something. And a panel of four people. Uh, would would uh, give them questions. And, and these were journalists and smart, smart people, often from the Northeast. And at the end of it, the idea would be, is the moderator would say, you know, would the real Jonathan please stand up? And they would all fake in their positions. After the panelists had voted, and then the real person stands up, and they're all sort of surprised that none of them got who the real person was. And that's the way I feel about David. I'm just kind of wondering, you know, would the real David uh, show himself? This is the kind of Sunday school images that we have of David, shepherd boy. And uh, if you're keen in your Bible, you know David says as he's preparing to get into the Goliath mode, you know, I've actually taken on both a lion and a bear which not many people could say that. And then, of course, we have the famous story of David uh, slaying the Philistine giant with no, with no tools at all. And he was able to actually chop off his head, which is not the thing that we normally 
think about. We have David as the victim, the artist, the, the songwriter, the poet. And there's this mean guy, Saul, who himself is a warrior trying to take his life. So there we have David. This guy who's just really good at... And we don't associate artists with warriors. David somehow is both. And we have David as the man on the run, the fugitive, the exile, the guy running from authority and from death. Uh, David also is a guy who has friends around him who have, who have assets, who have their own wives, who, who are very good at what he's doing, and that is killing people, raiding and pillaging and murdering uh, not just the men, but the women and the kids. That's been tough for me. Uh, we have David, an angry man. And angry because he's been insulted. And, and a woman gets engaged, called Abigail. And eventually Abigail becomes his wife. So David is not just a warrior and a poet, but he's a lover. And we never got here yet, but there's a story of David and Bathsheba, which is, which is uh, Hollywood has done a number on that several times. And then we have Michelangelo, who saw David as a political figure. Never been here, I want to go here. Want to go to Florence, and apparently he's gazing at Rome. So the Florentine people are looking at the Roman people and saying, "Hey, you know, we've got this giant, this beautiful, immaculate, and his his muscles are big, and his hands are big, and his head is big." So would the real David please stand up? That's what I've been thinking about. So as we read all this stuff, and it's been hard. It's not been easy. You're honest. Reading this stuff and trying to understand it and get, a big, get, get some kind of a framework. And so I'm going to give you a few things that I think are helpful as we're reading, in general, the Old Testament narrative. Well, these are, these are people with passion. Humans have passions. They have emotions. They have thoughts. And sometimes these things get out of whack. And so the idea is, you know, we have the poison of asps on our tongue. We can destroy someone, anyone, with one, one word placed at one time. We can become murderous. I know, I know parents that have lost possession of their kids through divorce, and they do feel like murdering that other person. It is real. It's possible for modern man to get into that state. So again, we have to just remember about human nature. The stuff we're made of. Elijah. He was a man of passions. And that, but there's this idea of grace. There's this idea of the new life. There's the idea of the gospel. And that's, that's, you can see that in the life of David. He is both, actually. He's a man of passion. And at the same time, he, he understands there's a God. And he, and he starts to relate to God. And that's where all of the, Interesting things come about being a human. So, pardon my French, but I, it's, it's a beautiful language. Um, the New Testament, which we kind of maybe get a bit closer to and we kind of can maybe manage it more, it, it says at least in two cases, the Apostle Paul 
who knew how to exposit the Old Testament and knew it well and was inspired, he said, these things that were written in the past, these lives that you can read about and ponder about, Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Pharaoh and Moses, keep going. Paul says these things were written for our instruction. They are instructive for us to read them. And in the end, it's not that we would despair, because I think it's easy to despair trying to understand these things, but that we would have hope. There is, there is a line of hope. There is a thread of hope in the whole story. It starts in Genesis. There's a line. There's a seed going on. There's a seed project, to use the words of John Lennox. And, and it's dirty, and it's messy, and it's not easy to, to, to piece it all together as if we understand everything. But it's there. It is there. It's light. It's hope. It is something that one can grab onto. It is a light that shines on your path. It is a good shepherd who, if you follow him, he will give you pasture. He will show you the way. And he will be there when you, when you lose your way. And you're weeping and you're dirty and you're poor and you've lost everything you think that your life is worth living for. And he's there. Again, Paul writes that these things happened to these people to serve as an example. These are illustrations. These are things you can look at people's lives and it doesn't always, the dots are not always joined. But if you read the story and read what happens, you can certainly learn, well, I don't want to do that. God help me not to do that. And there are many things in the life of David where you would want to say, God help me from doing that. So, let's look specifically at these scriptures that have been read to us. Give this a title, The King and the Ark. So, first we need to just do a little bit of review about the ark. I don't know where you all came from, what tradition you have come from, but the tradition here that was formerly Leaside Bible Chapel, people knew about the ark. There were whole meetings, weeks of meetings, with models of the tabernacle and the ark and the garments. It was a big deal. The ark is called the name of the Lord of the hosts. It's who sits enthroned on the cherubim. He, this is the ark. The ark was a symbol. The ark was a simple box. It was covered with some fancy metal, but essentially there was a box and there were things in the box and there was the mercy seat on top and there were the cherubim on that. And it had, it had it's important to note this, in the sense, it had rings on the side, and there were poles that were to be used when it was moved. Inside is where all the good stuff was. The ark symbolized God. God is a spirit. And for the Old Testament people, he was, he, there were symbols that represented who God was, and the ark was the place where they all came together. And inside of the ark were three things. 
there was the law, the stone cold tablets with the thou shalt nots on it, to which remind us that the law is perfect, but the law kills. The law drives you to the gospel. The law is you is that impossible efficiency to get. It's that you'll never get perfect. It's that you're always going to fail. You're always someone's going to find a defect in who you are or what you've done. It begs a savior, a redeemer. There was the uh, the bowl with the manna demonstrating that as humans, we are fragile. We need daily nourishment. All of us has to come from somewhere. When you're ill, sometimes medicine can't help you. We live in such a land of plenty, this never occurs to us, but it's this, it is true. We need our daily bread, and it comes ultimately from God. He is our creator, he's our sustainer, and all of our food comes from God. And he fed the people in the wilderness just a day at a time. That's the way God wants us to live. That's the gospel. You can't boast about the future. You can't relish in everything in the past. You've got to live in the day. And then there was Aaron's rod that budded, this almond rod. I remember Ruth, you and John came to our house once and you brought us this little plant. Uh, Our soil wasn't that great, so it it, it didn't last too long. But it an almond is a beautiful thing. It has these beautiful flowers. And the gospel is something that lives. It generates life and it generates color and it generates beauty. These are the things that were inside of the ark. It's a representation of God and the gospel. And the gospel lived in this tent. And inside the tent was a, that big tent. And then inside of that, it's like the shell game. And in, at the very left there, I don't know if there's a pointer here, but um, there is the, that's where the ark was when they weren't moving. It lived inside of the tent. And there were instructions in Numbers chapter 4 on how you were to transport the ark. Very detailed instructions for all this stuff. It'll kill anyone to try to do it all and do it well, but what they're supposed to do is the Levites were supposed to pack it all up, cover it over, get the poles, get four strong lads, and move it. When it was moving, because they moved. When the cloud moved, the fire moved, they moved. And the ark went with them. So we start off with the ark in the house of Abinadab. And I'm just going to say this, I think, represents the king in exile. Much has been made about this theme. If you're, if you're a fan of the, the Lord of the Rings, that's the, big th- that's the big theme, isn't it? The king is in exile. The ark had been in the land in Kiriath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab for a long time. David said, we've got to bring it out from the house, of, house of, of Abinadab. It had been there for at least 20 years, maybe 40 years. And David says, here's a chance now where 
everyone is going to be on the same page, all the tribes, and let's bring this thing home where it should be. So God is symbolized, I think, as being just in exile. All of these years were not great years. The years of Samuel and the judges and Saul, these were not great years. These were days of men. Days of great men doing great exploits in the name of God. And some of the stories are horrific. You would never want to even teach them in Sunday school. They are so gruesome and inhuman. Many kings have been in exile. There's a French emperor who was on Elba. And if you read the Count of Monte Cristo, it talks about the emperor in exile. It's a very simple question. Very simple idea, I think. And that is that God, the sovereign of the universe, does, allows himself, gives us the freedom to put him in exile, functionally. God is preeminent. God is sovereign. God's will will be done independent of the movement of men in the universe. But in time and space is where we live. God allows you, allows me, doesn't matter what stage of spirituality you're at, you may, have, you may be against him, you may don't believe he exists, you may be a believer in name only. I don't know where you're at, but I know. I can put God anytime I want in park and just do or think or be someone else apart from a daily engagement with him and saying, Lord, uh, help me. Lord, I need your spirit to help me today. Lord, I've read your words. I don't understand everything that they mean. Can you help me understand what they mean? I'm struggling, Lord, in this part of my life to do with an addiction. I'm struggling with my temper. I'm struggling at work. My marriage, Lord, is, is almost gone. What am I going to do, Lord, with my kids? I mean, all of these things. I can just put that aside. Take the bonus and take the praise and puff myself up. And God allows you to do that. It's not good. It's not God's will. God, Jesus is the good shepherd. He calls out. Come to me. Believe in me. Trust in me. Take me as your Savior. Repent of those sins. Believe the gospel. But one thing this does show us is for a long time God can be in exile. And most of the Old Testament is God in exile. There's only a a very short few chapters where God is central to God's people and they're following him and loving him. it's, it's, It's the briefest of candles. And when his son comes, when the real king in exile comes, just read the Gospels to find out his reception. One would have thought, after all of those years, Israel would be ready for their Messiah. But by nature, we are not. So I'm just encouraging you. Maybe the Spirit's talking to you today.
breaking through some human barriers that no one can break through. So I'm just going to invite you to invite the king into your house, into your life, into your will space, into your wallet, into who you are. Because you need him. And because he's king. This is the hardest part of this story. David says, let's bring it up. And they bring it up. And the author is wants to put on a spin that they put it on a new cart. He says it here. He says it here. And they were, <laughs> they were celebrating. They were being exuberant. Remember, David is a musician. He's the art guy. It's going to be good. He's, they are making a lot of noise and, and rejoicing, making, making worship as best they can. What happens is one of the people in charge sees that the situation is not stable because, you know, there, were, there was no new tarmac there, no new paving there, and they were oxen, and the ark began to fall, and as it did what you or I would have done. Hold it. The Bible had said, numbers had said, that that shouldn't be done. And, and the record is, is that God was angry. God struck him down, and more than that, he died. He died. The Bible is a book, a record of not just Uzzah, but other people whom this happened to as well. Even in the New Testament, there was Ananias who was struck dead. Paul talks to the Corinthians and says, For this reason, some of you sleep. So these, these are kind of frightening things. These are not things we like to think about. And what normally happens, and this is good, because it demonstrates uh, a natural reaction. If you hear this story, I think it might be natural for you to be angry with God. Because... The penalty doesn't seem equal to the crime. It was a crime. God, God had said, don't do it this way. This is the way you're supposed to do it here. I can't help you when you do it the wrong way. You made a mistake. You shouldn't have done it. Here's the punishment. It seems extreme. So David gets angry. It's not fair, I'm sure he said. And then because he knew a little bit about who God was, he began to fear. This is also something that is a natural thing that humans do. Part of us, because we're never sure that God maybe does exist, and maybe the things that Jesus talked about are true, to do with the end, there will be a reckoning, and there will be some kind of assessment, so David was angry, David was fearful, and said, well, I just can't go on with this. And, and that happens to me so much. And it's a terrible thing about my character, is if things start going south, I just can't operate anymore. I can't have the gathering of the family when I've been hurt or injured. 
I just go away or say, I don't want to be part of this, which is terrible. So David wasn't willing. Stop. This isn't right. This isn't fair. So the big question, and this is a universal question, and I'm sure that you've asked it, and you must ask it if you're human, and that is, is God fair? Did the penalty meet the crime? Justice is a very difficult thing to understand. In our society, we have courts of law because two parties can't agree what is fair. If you could, you'd just shake hands and you'd go out for a drink and you'd enjoy your life. We have criminal courts for serious crimes. We have civil courts where someone does work and the other person says, the work's no good and I'm not paying you. We have family courts when people say, it's not worth it anymore. I can no longer carry on with your antics. We have, we have uh, adjudicating courts for landlords and tenants when things get broken or things aren't fixed. So in every case, we can't agree. We can't agree what's fair. Yeah. So we appeal to someone higher, some other higher thing. Ultimately, I suppose, when you get past the, our legal system, which is a bunch of contracts that other generations thought were fair, and you're still contentious, and you still don't think you got it right, you go to the Supreme Court, which is the last thing. And then, of course, there might be God. And one thing about God is that he is a judge. God is a judge. He, he knows about fairness. He, he cares. It makes a difference to God what happens on this earth and what actions get done, what crimes get committed. And he ultimately is the arbitrator on what is fair. I didn't know this exists, but I was, you know, I tried, I'm a visual person, so I like photos, so I put up on Google Images, God and Judge. And there, apparently there's a meme 20 years ago, there was kind of a gangster rapper who made famous this song and this album to do with only God can judge me. And I think probably I knew what that rapper was talking about. In other words, you don't judge me. You don't judge me. God will judge me. In other words, hey, don't try to tell me what to do or what to say. You don't know me. God will judge me. As if, as if, that's a safety net. For God to judge you is going to be much, much worse 
and more severe and more difficult than any human because God does know us. As our author, God knows us. He made us. He knows us individually. And he is righteous. So, the fact that God is judge. And if you're worrying about this, there's a characteristic of God that he does right by definition. And if that's not good enough for you or for me, then you must go somewhere else for your justice. So John, John Lennox was debating Richard Dawkins. And in the end, he, John spoke about the resurrection and the gospel. And he said, and if there is no resurrection, and if there is no God, then the terrorists have won. Because there's nothing out there. So the universe, the earth, cries out for justice. And ultimately, God is judge. And we need, we need a buffer. We need someone who's going to mediate our sin, our failure, David's failure with the king. I want to close very quickly. So David parks the ark in, in someone else's home. God was parked for 40 years in the home of Abinadab waiting for David to represent what it meant for Israel to have a king. David gets cold feet because he's upset and angry at God. And so he says, you take it. You take him. And I, it's almost humorous. It's almost as if um, God is playing a little game here. Because what happens... The ark goes there for three months. And the Lord begins to bless this person's house. The person, Obed-Edom's house, gets blessed. And blessing is what every human wants. All of the wars are fought because people actually, the ancient, the ancient, Civilizations are all about the elders blessing the youngers. Two parties coming together and blessing one another. In other words, I affirm you who you are. I'm not going to be at war with you. What's done is done. And the children. Again, universal. Everyone wants their kids or children to be blessed. So the ark the symbol of God goes to this guy's house and it's blessing. So if you have a problem with God as a judge, I sympathize with you. But at the same time, remember that God with us is a blessing. Part of the seed project is God wants to bless you. He wants to bless every nation of the world such that in the end there is an innumerable number of people like you broken and in need of a savior around his throne. A huge number that you couldn't imagine how many there would be. And it's 
happening through this nation of Israel. When Jesus comes, his whole life is a blessing. Jesus is the Messiah. He can't but bless people. He feeds people. He's involved in the ordinary needs of people and he's always blessing people with food, with wisdom, with healing, with miracles. We're going to be soon engaging with our own symbols. These are the symbols of Jesus that he left for his people everywhere until he comes. He says it's a blessing. If you're in Christ, you're invited to the table. It's a blessing. When Paul talks about the gospel, it's just the largest blessing ever. That's what it is. That's, that's what it's about. It doesn't seem that way every day. That's, our, that's the way God wants it to be. We, there's work for us to do in this earth, and there's work that God has to do in us. And it's done through the church, through the local church. Finally, the ark is restored. David says, <laughs> we need this blessing. David changes. His anger turns to dancing. And, and he, he gets it. I've, I've got to get past my anger with God and understand that God wants to bless not just me, but the nation. So, they take the ark and they bear it. The cart is probably gone now. They're doing things a little bit better like how God wanted. And I don't want to get into that. I don't want to get into how God wants you to do things. Back in those ancient days when we had the meetings and the ark and the tabernacle and all that, there was a common interpretation for the new carts. And that was anything new. The new hymn book. You know, that was, that was man's modern thing and God wanted whatever, the old hymn book or no piano or very wooden bad interpretations. God cares about order. God has rules for life. He has rules for male and female. He has rules for parenting. He has rules for how we are to treat one another. He does. They're not laws like we're under a code where we're going to appear in court because we broke three of them yesterday. But they remain. And he has given us the gift of the Spirit, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So there they go. Finally, the ark's coming home. And David, as who he is, philosopher, poet, warrior, all of that, David begins to feel who he really is. And he starts dancing with all his might. And takes off his armor and his kingly stuff and he just puts on an ephod. So there he is. Free at last. We can't go there. I can't be that transparent with you. I'd love it if I could be open and transparent with you as if I were naked. That's the goal. To see who we are as humans. 
and realize our failure and not be afraid of other people's judgment. Not be afraid of God's judgment because Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice has paid that price for us. And just be able to be who we are. People who are rejoicing. People who are laughing. People who are dancing. People who are crying. People who are the fullness of Christ in us. Let's just pause briefly. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us in these ancient images of a box and bread and the law, the rod, and judgment and blessing. Help us as we partake now of these contemporary images of you.